Okay, so you're here for some great church leadership content. The podcast is great, but there's also another piece of content you need to be enjoying each week. It is the Leading Saints email newsletter. Now I get it. Email newsletters feel so 2006, you know? But it isn't as old-fashioned as you might think. It's actually one of the most popular pieces of content that Leading Saints produces. Each week, I share a unique leadership thought that can only be found in the newsletter. I keep it short and sweet. Most can read it in less than five minutes. And then we share with you recent content you might have missed, throwback episodes, and Leading Saints events that happen more often than you might anticipate. If you want to make sure you are on the email list, simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. That will also get you 14 days access to our full library of content not available to the general public. So look for Leading Saints in your inbox by going to leadingsaints.org 14 or click the link in the show notes. Hey, if you're a newbie to Leading Saints, it's important that you know, what is this Leading Saints thing? Well, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And the way we do that is through content creation. So we have this phenomenal podcast, we have a newsletter, we have virtual conferences, so much more. Articles on our website, I mean, I could go on and on, right? (laughs) And we encourage you to uh, jump in, check out Leading Saints, uh, go to the search bar at leadingsaints.org and type in some topics and see what pops up. We're just glad you're here to join us. Let me jump in and introduce the episode that you're about to hear, and I'm doing it today with my two-year-old Mariah here, because that's just what this morning had to offer. And she pushed the microwave, but we'll power through, and I am interviewing... In this episode, Lauren Spendlove, and a big shout out to my friend Garrett Crone for recommending that I sit down with Lauren. Lauren is actually the mission president, or was Garrett's mission president, back when they both served in Mozambique. Now, you'll maybe remember back when I interviewed the Packard family. Uh, They are the mission president that uh, Lauren and his wife replaced in Mozambique, and they have a phenomenal story. I love sitting down with Lauren for a few reasons, because... He is an atypical leader and one that I hope that our faith community produces more and more and looks to individuals who are maybe not on the typical route to become a leader because he was called as a mission president before he had any specific leadership role like a bishop or a stake of president. In fact, they had to make him a high priest so that he could become and serve as a a mission president. And another interesting factoid about him is that uh, he has been divorced once before. And that's something that uh, our our faith community is sort of uh, overcoming, I think, as far as putting divorcees in leadership roles. I think we need to do it more and more. And Lauren is proof as why that can be such a blessing to so many. And his leadership has blessed so many individuals. He's also a writer for the Interpreter Foundation. So if you're a consistent reader of uh, the articles that are published there, you're probably familiar with uh, his remarkable scholarship. He has a degree in Jewish studies in education and, and finance, PhDs. I mean, he, this guy is the full package and just a brilliant mind and fun to talk to. So here is my interview with Lauren Spenlove. All right, Lauren. So uh, when we were emailing back and forth, first, we, we got to start out giving a shout out to Garrett Crone, who's one of your uh, former missionaries, and uh, he arranged, orchestrated all this. Which Yay, is... Garrett. 
which you're very grateful for, right? But in these emails we went back and forth, you said, uh, I said something like, I've heard that you were an atypical mission president, and, and you said, oh, I'm just an atypical person, right? That is true. And I mean, wh- why do you say that? Pretty much because there's nothing about me that is normal. Yeah? My interests are completely, I was going to say abnormal, but that doesn't <laughs> sound right, does it? That's right. I study Hebrew. For fun, right? I, and I don't <laughs> golf. Oh, wow. I know. Okay. I know. And you're like in that golfing age And I'm retired. Right yeah. So what do you do? <laughs> you study Hebrew. That's right. what you do. Nice. And that's why I had to study Hebrew. Nice. And have you always been that way, even like growing up? Or? I have. Yeah. I have. Uh, Tina likes to joke, when I was 18 years old, I bought the Journal of Discourses. Oh, wow. I did. And jumped right in, huh? Yeah. It was my first book set that I had ever bought, but yeah, it was the Journal of Discourses. So do you see yourself as like very academic? Is that a fair description? You know, I never would have described myself that way. I always did well academically, Uh but I wasn't an academic. I wouldn't have ever considered myself any kind of a gospel scholar, but I was a consumer of gospel scholarship. I loved to read and listen to and watch things, anything dealing with gospel topics, I always enjoyed, but I always saw myself on the outside of that. Yeah. And so growing up, did you think your career would lead you in a path of scholarship? No. Okay. What were you going to be when you grew up? I was going to be a doctor, and then I realized I uh, nearly faint at the sight of blood <laughs> and wasn't a chemistry or biology student. I didn't enjoy that. But economics fascinated me. So I ended up getting a a degree in business and an MBA and pursued that course instead. Nice. And you're still pursuing higher education at Uh, this point in your life. Indeed. Yeah. And these, I mean, how many more degrees or, I mean, you're just going to keep going. That's the plan. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. If you stop learning, you just may as well die. Yeah. So you got to keep learning. That's right. right. Nice. And you, what years did you serve as the mission president of Mozambique? 2009 to 2012. Okay. And man, where to start with this? I mean, again, going back to this atypical word, like your journey there, I mean, you weren't even a high priest when you were asked to to serve as a mission president. Typically, I would say 90% of mission presidents seem like they've at least been even like in a state presidency before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at a bare minimum, a bishop and and a high council member and all that. But, you know, not being a high priest means, of course, I had never served in a bishopric, never served in any kind of a state calling, never presided over anything, basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so what's the story behind how that, that calling came into your life? Well, that, that's really an interesting story. Tina and I, we were running a business over in uh, Shanghai, China, and we were going back and forth between the U.S. and China, and we were doing really well with the business. It was, you know, I always tell Tina, we're just not this smart. It did much better than I ever anticipated that it would. And and we were just having the time of our life. We were flying back and forth to China and taking vacations all over the world. And, and one of these vacations, we rented an RV and we're just traveling around Europe and just having a great wow. time. Sounds like it, yeah. And I was driving and Tina was sitting in the back of the RV and, and I... Just looked back at her through the uh, rear view mirror and I said, Tina, we're making boatloads of money. We're having a great time and I feel completely empty. Hmm. How about if we just hang it up and go on a mission? And Tina said, let's do it. Just like that. And then where did that mission lead you? Well, we went ahead and put our mission papers in and Tina's aunt and uncle who were serving in Johannesburg, they found out about 
that we had submitted our mission papers. And they said, hey, why don't you come and serve here in uh, South Africa with us? You can be CES missionaries with us here in South Africa. And at the time, I had no, I knew nothing about Africa, but I knew I didn't want to serve there. Mm -hmm. And where'd you serve as a young man? Brazil. And I wanted to go back to Brazil. And so I said, you know what, Tina, just just tell them that uh, I want to serve Portuguese speaking and and that's it. And, it'll, and they'll drop it. It'll be done. <laughs> but uh, they wrote back immediately and said, hey, well, right next to us is the country of Mozambique. And they speak Portuguese. You could serve there. And I was like, oh, dang it. I didn't think about that. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, we ended up getting our call to go to Mozambique. Nice. And I wasn't terribly excited about yeah. it. In fact, I wasn't excited at all. Yeah. But, but we went. And this was one of those senior missions that you picked specifically, like you saw an opening and went for it or did you? Well, no, they actually picked it for us. They talked to their supervisor who then requested us. Oh, I see. So we didn't pick it at all. So this was back in 2007. And so we were called as the country directors for Mozambique and Angola for the church education system, basically overseeing institute and seminary in those two countries. Wow. And it was great. We actually enjoyed it. And Africa turned out to be better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so the official language of Mozambique is Portuguese Portuguese. and, and same with Angola, right? Yes. Okay. And they speak a very different version of Portuguese than I was used to. So it took a little bit to get used to. Yeah. But nonetheless, at least, at least you were speaking Portuguese. Then. That's true. Yeah. That's so, true. <laughs> but you went there and it, did it take much to fall in love with the place? Well, you know, there Africa, just in general, and we've been to several countries in Africa, you know, they're, the, the people are just amazingly wonderful. But there are also cultural issues that are very difficult to deal with. And so it was... But you find that anywhere. Yeah, yeah. And so there were things that were just amazing about the place and other things that weren't. Yeah. And so you, how long was that mission set to be? It was a year and a half. Okay. And that was the plan and you were going to, and what were, how would you describe like your day-to-day focus or responsibilities during that mission? We traveled around and met with the different seminary and institute teachers. We did a lot of training there. Plus the mission president used us a lot to just help out on the mission. So we helped out with the missionaries that were there. We helped out with their housing and and also with mission finances. I paid the bills up in that part of the country. It's very remote area where we lived. And so I handled the church finances up there. Okay. So yeah, we did a lot of the things with the missionaries. Nice. And you served during that time under... Uh, Blair Packard and, and Cindy Packard, That's right? correct. And we've interviewed them a couple times and right. they're, they're great people. And so you finished the 18 months? We did. And plan over going to come home? And- yeah, we didn't exactly know. We thought maybe we'd come back and pick up the business where we had left off. Uh-huh. You did the mission, that, that inspiration came and you, you went followed through with it. And right, so- right. In fact, we did come back and start doing the business again. And very interesting. I mean, I could jump right into what happened after that. We went to China. Tina had to come back a little bit early. She came back a week before I did. And uh, I flew. Before that, I need to give you some back history. Right before we went on this trip to China, our stake president called us and said, hey, we, we're, we don't know where your records are. And we thought that was weird that the stake president was calling us. And <laughs> But then some woman from church headquarters contacted us and said they're trying to find our records. And we couldn't find our records anywhere. And finally, while Tina was on the phone with her, they found out that our records were in Hong Kong because we had been living in China before our first mission. And we thought all that was done. 
Well, I flew back from China on this last trip, and I had a voicemail from Sister So-and-So. I don't remember her name from church headquarters. Could you please give me a call? And I thought, wow, they still they've still have problems with our church records. They can't find out where we are. And I thought, well, this is weird. I thought the church was more efficient than that. <laughs> so I called. I was in the Chicago airport, and I called her up, and she said, oh, Brother Spendlove, thanks for calling back so quickly. I didn't know how long it had been since she had left the message. And she said, uh, this is uh, President Packer's office, Boyd Packer's office, and President Packer would love to talk to you too. And I thought, this feeling, this dread just overcame me. Uh-huh. And I knew instantly what it was. And she said, would you be willing to talk with him? And I said, well, sure. <laughs> and when's a good time for you? And I said, whenever is good for him. And they said it for the following Tuesday. And I called Tina and I said, hey, I just got this call from sister so-and-so from church headquarters. And she said, what? They still can't find our records? And I said, no, <laughs> President Packer wants to talk to us. And Tina said, what? <laughs> anyway, we met with President Packer. And, you know, I was, I always saw President Packer as just this stern, kind of mean kind of guy. Yeah. But he wasn't at all that way. He was so, so nice and so sweet and so kind. We talked for about an hour. And the whole time, it was like talking to my grandpa. Hmm. He's just a great guy. The word mission president never came up in the conversation. But when we got to the end of the conversation, he said, well, we're going to take your name to the temple and we'll see what comes of it. And do you have any questions or comments? And I said, well, President Packer, Tina and I will do anything that the Lord wants us to do, but I would prefer not to go back to Africa. Hmm. And there's a backstory there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to get into that? Probably need to. Okay. Yeah, that's right. On our first mission, halfway through the mission, Tina and I, and I won't tell all the details, I'll just do a brief summary. We were attacked in our home at about 2.30 in the morning. Eight guys with machetes showed up and were Mm. trying to pound down our door. They broke our window and are trying to grab stuff and demanding that we open the door. And they're trying to actually pop our door open and I'm pushing their tools down and we're screaming, trying to get the neighbors to come. And the neighbors finally did come. And there was a big machete fight outside of our house. And we ended up hauling people to the emergency room afterward. And it was quite traumatic. I didn't know what PTSD was at the time, but I definitely had it. Tina amazingly escaped the PTSD. Mm. Anyway, I was severely hit by the PTSD. And It was a chore for me just to finish the mission. Every night, as soon as the sun would go down, I would just start feeling this anxiety and just what I could call fear come over me. Mm. And literally counted down the days to the end of our mission. I didn't end as strong as I had hoped to. We finished our mission, and we finished because that was a commitment we had made, and we we didn't want to set a bad example for our children and grandkids. And so we finished the mission and, and then came home. But uh, I vowed when we got home that I, it's really funny, we were meeting with some friends afterward and they said, will you ever go back to Africa? And I said, the only way I will ever go back to Africa is if I get a signed letter from all three members of the first presidency <laughs> and it's got to be original signatures, no, no stamps or anything. <laughs> I didn't know that such a letter existed, but when you get a call as a mission president, you get a signed letter (laughs) by all three of them in their original signatures. You spoke into existence almost. Oh, (laughs) my stars. I didn't even know what I was doing. Yeah. Anyway, so that's why I told President Packer that. And he said, well, we'll remember that. We'll keep that in mind and we'll let you know. And and if anything's going to happen from here, we'll 
some a member of the first presidency will contact you. And mm-hmm. sure enough, a month later, President Eyring wanted to talk to us. And that's when he called us to preside over the Mozambique Maputo mission. Wow. And uh, when he spoke those words, I felt two sensations that were just un- overwhelming. One was, again, just this fear. I felt this fear overcome me. And then Quite literally, from my head down to my feet, I felt the spirit just burn every cell in my body. I I felt like I was on fire. Mm. And the Lord, in in His mercy, gave me that witness because without it, I don't know how I would have responded to that call. And so I said yes, and then He asked Tina, and Tina said yes, and that was it. Yeah. And we had almost seven months before we entered the MTC, and I had a journey. I didn't, still didn't know that I was dealing with PTSD, and I really didn't know what PTSD was at the time. However, Tina had started taking a course in, and she was doing a master's degree in psychology, and she just happened to be taking a course in PTSD. And I was reading one of her papers, and I said, that's me. Wow. That's what I've got. Wow. That was amazing. And uh, Was that like a liberating, like an encouraging, like liberation feeling? Well, kind of, but it also, <laughs> I felt sentenced. Oh, Once yeah. Once I read it, it's yeah. like, dang, I'm scarred now. Mm. And uh, I was feeling very bitter and angry. There were actually 12 missions that needed mission presidents in Brazil. And then there was this one in Mozambique, and mm-hmm. I thought of all the places I could have gotten called. Why couldn't I have gotten called to Brazil? I've already done Africa. And I was bitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day I was talking to my sister on the phone, and she uh, metaphorically slapped me into shape and told me I needed to uh, get my act together because I was just whining and complaining to her. And I, that's when I realized she's right. What kind of a mission president am I going to be if I don't even want to do this? And it had nothing to do with the calling itself. It was all about going back to Mozambique, this place where I had been traumatized. So I decided that I had to do something about it. And so I started praying every day for the Lord to bless me with faith to overcome this ailment that I had. And it didn't happen overnight. It was probably about four or five months. It was about a month before we went into the MTC that I finally started accepting that, okay, this is what the Lord wants. Why don't I want it? I need to change my will to accept God's will. I need to do what Christ did and just say, hey, I don't want to do this, but this is your will. And why am I fighting this? And once I let that go, my PTSD, it was amazing. It just kind of evaporated over months, Mm -hmm. but it did happen. And I can honestly say that back in Mozambique, I felt no fear anymore. The the real test of that, we were living back in China again. We were about three weeks away from going into the MTC and starting our mission. And we found out that President Nelson and his wife, Wendy, were over in Mozambique visiting when they were attacked in the mission home, the the mission home that the the Packards were were serving in and living in. And... The same mission home that we would be living in in three weeks. Wow. And man, I felt for the Nelsons and the Packards, but it didn't phase me at all. Oh, really? Even knowing that I was going to be living in in that home that was attacked, it didn't bother me. And that's when I knew that the Lord had healed my heart. Wow. And he truly It didn't phase you, huh? It didn't. Wow. Wow. And that was, your wife mentioned to me, 
at lunch today that that was one of your first orders of business was to find a new mission home to move to that was a little more secure. Was that right? (laughs) Yep. We were told to find a new mission home. Took us about a year, but we finally found a new mission home. In the meantime, we lived in that mission home for about a year. Wow. And unfazed. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That was a great mercy that the Lord gave me personally. So there's a few dynamics I want to talk about as far as your call and, and serving as a mission president. One being that you had never been in any really formal leadership role. Correct. You know, you're still an elder and, and that was like, they you were probably the only mission president they had to tell to yep, get yep. made a high priest right. before. Is there a story behind that or what's... Well, you know, it's really interesting. Elder Colliker, Paul Colliker, he was a member of the 70 and he was serving as the uh, president of the area in Johannesburg. And the night that we were attacked, he just happened to fly into Mozambique to do a conference with the members. And he just arrived in the city we were serving in just that night. And we didn't know that. But that morning we met with him. And I think he was impressed that we didn't go home because he's the one who submitted our names to be the next mission president couple. He'd already done it, done that at this point, or no? He, oh, okay. After he met us, he oh, I see. decided, and that's when I didn't know that he had done that. And we saw him just before we went into the MTC. We went to a general conference session, and he was at general conference. And I went up to him and I said, "Elder Colliker, you won't believe this, but we've been called to go back to Mozambique as the mission leaders." and and he said, yes, I know. I'm the one who submitted your name. Oh, wow. I think basically he was impressed with Tina. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, that you can get any guy to do that. But what woman after being attacked in her home there is going to voluntarily go back again? Yeah. I mean, that wow. takes... And Tina was the, the strong one here between us. Hmm. And I think he was so impressed with Tina that he thought, we'll deal with Lauren because, you know, yeah, Tina will work. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then what about just like the dynamics of walking into a full-time leadership role where you didn't, you know, have, you haven't been the stake president that's been in hundreds of hours of interviews before or whatever. I mean, were there any, and and maybe that was in a lot of ways, probably a bonus that you didn't have that experience maybe dragging you down at times, but what was that like for you? You know, it's very interesting. The first thing that came to my mind, and as we were walking out of President Eyring's office and walking through the tunnel to the parking lot, I turned to Tina and I hope I can say this word on your... Uh, Please do. <laughs> okay. I turned to Tina and I said, dang, I'm going to have to hear have to uh, hear interviews dealing with masturbation now. <laughs> and I said, because I've never done anything <laughs> yeah. like that. And I said, I, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> that was the first thing that came to my mind. And so you're right. I hadn't interviewed young people before, and I I had never sat in a disciplinary council before or anything like this. This was all brand new to me. But you know what? I know how to read, and I'm a fairly intelligent guy, and the the church has great manuals. And so, plus I can ask people. Yeah. And I did. I made a lot of phone calls in the first part of my mission. I called President Packard several times, asking his advice on things and trying to get his counsel on things. Mm -hmm. And so, because I could read and because the church had great manuals, that really was it. Plus, a very interesting thing. I remember talking with Elder Renlin one time. He became our area president in the Southeast area. And he said something very interesting to me to kind of assure me one time. He said, You know, there are really two types of organizations of the church out there. It's almost a lot like a business. He said, think about a business that's just starting up. It's uh, entrepreneurial. 
you need a different type of leader to lead an entrepreneurial organization than you do a well-established organization. To lead a stake or a ward along the Wasatch Front requires a very different skill set than leading a church organization in a place like Africa. It's much more entrepreneurial. And I mm. was entrepreneurial. Yeah, you've been there, done that. Yeah. Yes. And he said, you are the right people for the call at this time because you and Tina are entrepreneurs and can think outside of the box. And that's what it really required when we were in Africa. Just one anecdote on that. And this is one thing that I was thinking about. Oh, after we had been in Mozambique for about a year, I was just emotionally exhausted. Every month, I was having to impose some type of formal discipline on a branch president, a member of a district presidency, a financial clerk or a counselor wow. for stealing from the church. I mean, we're handing over more money to these men than they see in years. So they have a, a budget of maybe $3,000. That's an absurd, insane amount of money for them. That's years worth of salary if they're even working at all. Mm -hmm. And many of them just couldn't deal with that. And a blessing dropped out of the sky on this one. Every month, we're excommunicating or disfellowshipping some individual. And so we're constantly changing the signature cards at the bank. And the bank came to the district president and said, we're not going to let you do this anymore. You guys change your signatories on your bank accounts far too often. We're not going to allow that. Establish certain individuals and leave it that way. And we're not going to change it. So we had a situation in that city where we had to have just one bank account for the entire district, oh, wow. for the district and all the branches. And that was amazing because that provided an opportunity. That meant that anytime a branch president needed money, that branch president had to go to the district for the money. There was one central yeah. focus for the money and we could control it. And it was great. I didn't have to do any disciplinary councils after that for anybody in that district. Wow. And I was talking to the area about it and they said, but president, in back in the church in the US, we don't do this. We trust our leadership. We don't put controls like that, like this on them. And I said, yes, but we're also not giving our leaders in the church access to millions of dollars, which would be right. the equivalent. Right, yeah. And he just kind of, uh, the member of the area presidency I was talking to just kind of said, well, maybe you're onto something there. And, and it turned out to be an absolute blessing. Hmm. And again, that wasn't church policy. That's not what the church said we did, but it worked for our area. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. So going back to your call, another point I want to touch on is, is you and Tina have both gone through a divorce yes. and you, you have a blended family. Right. And there's sort of a stigma and somewhat of a traditional stigma that, you know, if you're divorced, the, 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 you don't have opportunities to serve as a bishop or stake president or right, mission president. Right. But what comes to mind as far as being a divorcee who's, who's now served in leadership and did it come up at any point in the process? You know, it, it, the really interesting thing is the church was well aware that we had been divorced and that this was a new marriage for us. In our case, I think we were an exception to the rule because we were going to an exceptional location. And I think being an exception to that rule seemed to make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, we weren't, you know, and that, that goes back to another point, trying to make the church in Africa or the church in the Philippines or the church wherever into the image of the U.S. church is just not a wise course to take. Yeah, You know, I have a beard right now <laughs> and the church is still somewhat anti-beard. 
Although you see it in members in bishoprics now. Yeah. A couple of members of our bishopric have a beard. 10 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. 20 years ago, definitely not. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the problem is we want to make every international organization just like the Utah Church, and it just doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. We had a real problem when we we served a mission in, in Brazil. And this is after you served as a the mission, as yes, mission leaders, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so we're serving in this this ward in in Brazil. In fact, uh, this whole area in Brazil, and we were in this one specific ward. These parents that we were working with to try to reactivate, they contacted Tina and me, and they said, "Hey, our son went to church, and the bishop kicked him out." Mm. And I said, "Kicked him out for what? For what reason?" He and his friend went to church, and they were wearing baseball hats. And the bishop said, "You can't come into the chapel." with a hat on. It's disrespectful. And his son said, well, I wear my hat everywhere. I wear it to school. I, I wear it everywhere. I'm not going to take it off. And the bishop said, then you can't come in the church. So I was serving as a counselor in the mission presidency, and that was a mission district at the time. So mm-hmm. I went over and I spoke with the bishop and I said, bishop, listen, this family, they're not active in the church. And this is just a cultural thing. You know, we need to get past culture. What would Christ do in a situation like this? Would he say you're not dressed appropriately because you have a hat on? You can't come into our church. And I said, in Israel, you must wear a hat, a kippah. You must wear a hat in synagogue. Men Mm -hmm. have to wear a kippah. They have to have their head covered. This is purely cultural. This has nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. And he nodded, okay, uh, sorry won't happen again. The young man went back two weeks later and the same thing happened. Oh, no. (laughs) He was kicked out of church again because he wouldn't take his hat off by the very same bishop. Mm -hmm. And so this was frustrating. We have a hard time differentiating between culture and gospel. Yeah. And we want to impose these ideas that we have on individuals. And most of us are blind to these cultural elements that we have. One common thing in, in Mozambique where our elders would come to us and say things like, isn't this cultural aspect of Mozambique stupid? Isn't this dumb what they do here? And isn't this dumb the things that they bring into the church? And so we did a zone conference specifically <laughs> yeah. on cultural aspects of different cultures. And we talked about aspects of of American culture that are just strange and bizarre. Not just American, but Western culture. I mean, we want to marry a girl, and so what do we do? We go out and buy a rock that she puts on her finger, and we spend thousands and thousands of dollars on this. What a strange thing, and we don't get married until we can afford this rock, or we go into debt to do this. Yeah, Bizarre stuff, but <laughs> we think of it as so normal, just as they think as their, of their culture as so normal. Yeah. But these are cultural things that have nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. Yeah. And is there anything we can do, like from a leadership standpoint, like even in along the Wasatch Front, if you know, to as just a matter of pointing at these and saying, where does that come from? Let's stop doing that. Or what comes to mind? Well, the biggest problem there is that we're all blind to our own culture. Yeah. We can't see that we have culture. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think most people don't believe that they have any culture. They don't believe they speak with an accent. Mm-hmm. Until you start comparing how you speak with how everyone else does, but then you think you speak the correct way. So culture is a difficult thing to see unless we're looking at other people. Other people can see our cultural abnormalities, but we can't see them. And so the first thing is to actually try to discover our culture and see where the culture does impact our understanding of the gospel. 
And it does to a large degree, just the way we read the scriptures, we read it with a 21st century Western culture in, in our minds. And I don't know how we get out of that, especially if we haven't exposed ourselves to other, other cultures. But we are so embedded in our own culture that we can't even absorb the Old Testament without understanding it from a cultural paradigm that matches ours. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's really the first step, right? Is just to recognize that I don't see the culture isn't obvious to me because it's just, there's the water I swim in, right? That's right. It's just, it's just there, right? And so, but the more we can maybe, maybe we need some Mozambican mission presence to come over here and, and help us see that, right? Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. And, and that maybe is the benefit of this growing church. We, you know, there's so many cultures involved in, in what we do now that hopefully some of these cultural norms are being more obvious. And, you know, very interesting. I remember when some area leaders came to visit with us, and these are things that we're just just blind to. We just don't even see. One of the sisters uh, went into the primary to try to teach, to try to do some training with the primary leaders of the of the district. And very interesting, well-intended. She got up in front. She said, now, when you're teaching the kids to sing, it's good to do hand motions. And she was doing this through a translator. One of our missionaries was translating for her into Portuguese. And she said, for example, the primary song that we sing, I looked out the window and what did I see? Popcorn popping on the apricot tree. Or so she said, one of the things that I like to do when we're doing this when we first start singing that song and we say, I looked out the window, she said, I point to my eyes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and of course, she doesn't speak Portuguese. Now, in English, I and I are homonyms. Uh-huh. <laughs> but we, of course, in Portuguese, they're not. And so the elder translating didn't even know how to explain that to the sisters in attendance that you should point <laughs> to your eyes when you're talking about yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Somehow that got lost and he couldn't translate it. And the sister who was doing the training got frustrated with him. And and so these are the cultural things that we don't even know we're involved with because it's so much embedded in our own language. Yeah. Wow. And, and that's so simple, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Such a basic thing like yeah. that. Yeah. Interesting. I want to talk about, you know, going back to this out of the box concept of Going into Mozambique that, you know, the the old school handbook and rules and structure probably didn't always fit very well, right? That's, that's true. They didn't. And, you know, I, I something I liked uh, that I have phrased, think or, you know, living or thinking outside of the orthodox box. Mm-hmm. Orthodoxy is a wonderful thing. Um, orthodoxy comes from two different Greek words, and it basically means to think together, think within a... Think in a box, in essence, okay? It's to think the correct way is what the word orthodoxy means. And orthodoxy is is very important. It's why we have come follow me right now in in our Sunday school classes, so that everybody's kind of in the same area. Uh, We're all kind of doing the same thing. We're all not off doing our own things. It also keeps some weird things from happening. I remember as a young man in Brazil, we baptized this guy. First time that he's ordained a priest and he gets up and he starts blessing the sacrament. He's kneeling next to my companion and he raises both of his arms high above his head. And he says, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered his disciples together and he was going to tell the story of the Last Supper. Wow. (laughs) And my companion just elbowed him and said, just say the prayer. (laughs) 
So orthodoxy keeps us away from those kinds of experiences. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have an orthodoxy, if we didn't have a set of guidelines that we live by within the church, we would have all sorts of issues Mm -hmm. and all sorts of weirdness going on. So I understand that the church needs to do that. But at the same time, there's a lot of room inside of that orthodox box Mm -hmm. where we can innovate. For example, uh, and this is just an ex- uh, something that really happened to me, when we were living in a ward down in St. George, I was asked to substitute teach for uh, gospel doctrine one day, and it was on Daniel, the book of Daniel. And so I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to talk about something that maybe we don't usually talk about. And so I asked the members of the class, how many chapters are there in the book of Daniel? And nobody really knew, but they looked it up really quickly, and somebody said, 12 And I said, that's right. And did you know that up until just over 100 years ago, there were officially 14 chapters of the book of Daniel? (laughs) Well, I had no idea. (laughs) Ah, And everybody just looked at me like, what is he talking about? Well, there there are two chapters that used to be in the book of Daniel. The Catholics still have them. It's still in the Catholic Bible. But in our Protestant King James Bible, those were officially removed in 1885. Wow. Yes. So even after the restoration was started, right? Yes, like, yeah, wow. yes, yes. The uh, Bible that Joseph Smith, that Oliver Cowdery bought for Joseph to do the inspired translation with actually had those extra two chapters in it, but we don't have those anymore. So we spent our time that Sunday talking about those two chapters of the book of Daniel <laughs> that have been removed from the Protestant Bible, which is what we use yeah. in the church. We use the King James. We don't use the Catholic Bible. And so we we learned from those two chapters in the book of Daniel that Sunday. So maybe some might look at that as going outside of this orthodox box. I personally didn't. I thought we're still talking about Daniel and these used to be considered holy scriptures for well, almost 2000 years. Yeah. Why shouldn't they still be? And so we had a great time and yeah. it turned out to be a really great lesson. Okay, so why did they take them out or who took them out? <laughs> Well, Martin Luther was, well, that's a long story. (laughs) It's part of what we call the Apocrypha today. Oh, okay. So Martin- Joseph Smith didn't see it as part of the Apocrypha. No, it was in the Apocrypha in his Bible. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. But it was still in the Bible. It was an official part of the King James Bible up until 1885. Wow. There you go. Yeah. You're the first person to mention that fact on this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Probably doesn't surprise you. So, yeah. So with this orthodoxy, and, and sometimes that word, especially in- Modern times sort of sometimes gets beat up a little bit. like, And usually we take our leadership from, quote unquote, the orthodoxy, right? That's the safe bet. Like this is the person that's going to stay in, in the boundaries, right? But then that maybe sometimes impedes us from thinking outside the box when there is a lot of, of space within the orthodoxy box, right? Yeah. And very much, you know, first of all, we have to have orthodoxy. Every organization has orthodoxy or you don't have an, or, an organization. Mm-hmm. There is a correct way to think about things. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't think that way, then you're no longer part of our club or our group or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we orthodoxy is, an, is essential to any organization and we've got to have some type of bounds. I mean, God creates orthodoxy when he gives us commandments to live by. So yeah. um, we have to have this, but you're right. We can feel impeded by it unless, of course, we can see this box as being bigger than maybe what others have thought it 
it should be. And I'm not saying that we be so inclusive of everything that we don't exclude anything. Mm -hmm. That can't be the case. Then we don't have orthodoxy. So we do need to stay in the box. But we can still do some thinking that goes along the margins of the box. Yeah. And Tina's great about that. Tina's great with coming up with all sorts of what I previously would have called unorthodox ideas. They're actually very orthodox. They're just not in the center of that box where most of us tend to live within the church. Yeah. And you typically see that, like, you know, someone may come up with a really dynamic new idea to do within, you know, the organization, but it's like, oh, well, it doesn't mention that idea in the handbook. And so we probably shouldn't do it. When in reality, it's like, well, no, just because it doesn't mention it doesn't mean we can't do it. You know, we had a fascinating situation when we were serving as mission president couple. We were responsible for Mozambique and Angola. Mozambique and Angola are as far away as Salt Lake and New York. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So it was like a four-hour plane ride to get to Angola. But we were responsible for all the members and missionaries there, too. And it was just almost impossible for us to get visas to Angola. And we would submit our our passports, and sometimes it would take a month to a month and a half, even two months to get a visa. So we didn't get to make it over very often. And I brought this concern up with the uh, area presidency, and they authorized me to have a counselor over there. And then I just asked him, I said, I know that this isn't orthodox, but is it possible for somebody to give my counselor keys. Hmm. He wasn't a president, but could we give him keys so that he could set apart new branch presidents, so that he could issue callings, so that he could release missionaries and do all of these things that I'm supposed to be doing, but I can't make it over there a lot. And it took a couple of months, but the area got back to me and said, we got clearance from the first presidency to do this. And it was the only place in the world where I believe that was happening. Oh, wow. And so they asked me, they, they told me to fly over to Mozambique and to set my... my uh, fly over to Angola or Mozambique? I'm sorry, over yeah. to okay. Angola and to set apart my counselor with keys. Oh, wow. To share my keys with him. And so, and I just told him right then and there, I'm never going to come back. You are going to be the <laughs> wow. mission president, even though you're not called... By the church as a mission president, you are going to be the acting mission president of Angola, and you have the keys to do everything you need to do. If you have any questions, feel free to call me, but otherwise, gain your inspiration from the Lord and and deal with the people and the missionaries here effectively. Wow, that really simplified that dynamic. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So even the church, even in the uh, hierarchy of the church, they're not... uh, unwilling to listen to reason and logic. And that just made all sorts of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So was he, did you have more than two counselors then? Was he a third or? I did. He became a third counselor. So in essence, he functioned as an independent mission president Uh over Angola during our last mission, our last year while we were there on the mission. But on paper, he was a counselor and we talked quite often. We would talk every Every month or month and a half. Mm-hmm. Are, are, is Angola and Mozambique still one mission? Or? Uh, no, they've split. And so oh, Angola is its own mission now. Oh, great. That, yeah. It probably helps too. Yeah, it does. <laughs> nice. What about this, uh, you know, and this sort of somewhat attached to that, that discussion of orthodoxy, but uh, principles versus rules that you said that's a, was a topic that came up a lot as a mission president. Yeah. You know, one thing we wanted to avoid was rules on the mission. 
we had the white handbook and we we did live by that. We didn't deviate from that, even though there were times that it required deviation, and we did. Mm-hmm. When it called for it, we deviated from that. For example, the white handbook says that missionaries are to be up by 6.30 and, in, and uh, home by 9.30 and in bed by 10.30. That didn't work in Angola. Everybody gets up late there and they go to bed late, and all the good teaching opportunities started at about 8.30 to 9 o'clock at night. And so the elders would be getting home at 10 or 10.30 at night and violating the rules every time. So we contacted the area and I said, hey, here's the issue. Here's what we want to do about it. We want to push everything back by an hour. And uh, it seems to make sense for Angola. And they said, yeah, do it. So we did. So the missionaries there got up at 7.30, got home by 10.30 and went to bed by 11.30. And so, you know, again, you're trying to live by a, what makes sense here? What works for the area that you're dealing with? You know, while that may work if you're in Alabama or or Texas or California or Utah, it didn't work in Angola. It worked in Mozambique, but it did not work in Angola. And so we modified that and just adapted with it. And so what we tried to teach the elders was living by principles, correct principles was so much a better idea that if you live by principles, you don't have to have any rules at all. Mm-hmm. Because the principle being governed by and guided by the Spirit will teach you what to do at all times. And so I said, don't flagrantly violate the the rules of the white handbook. But if there's something you need to do that's different, and you know that if you talk to me, I would say, go ahead and do it, just do it. Mm-hmm. Don't bother me. Contact me with it. Just do it. And maybe in an inter- interview with me later, just tell me what you've done so I'm aware of it. But uh, don't call me all the time asking me if you can do this or do that. Let the Spirit guide you and go by what makes sense in in a specific situation. Yeah. I remember as a young man uh, on a mission in Brazil, my companion and I had to hitchhike somewhere to go visit somebody (laughs) because there were no buses that went there. And so we did. We hitchhiked out and that was clearly not not in conformity with mission rules, but it was something that had to be done and it was the only way it could be done. So that's what we did. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the whole mission culture and dynamic sometimes can really bring, you know, turn our young missionaries into very rigid individuals, right? Because they just want to be so obedient, right? Exactly. And of course, you know, we, obedience is a very a principle that we hold in high esteem in our faith tradition, but it almost gets to a point where they're so rigid that they miss the principle. You know, completely. but we learn a great principle with mm-hmm. Nephi. Nephi was well aware of the written word that he was not to kill. That's one of the basic Ten Commandments. But he realized that his obedience was not to the written word, but to the Spirit. And when the Hmm. Spirit said that he was to kill Laban, he knew that he had to make a choice between being obedient to the written word or to the voice of the Spirit. And once he was certain that he was indeed following the Spirit, that it was the Spirit telling him to do this, then he was obedient to the voice of the Spirit. And that's what we tried to teach the missionaries, was that their true obedience was to the Spirit of God and not to the written word, that the Spirit always trumped the written word. Yeah. yeah that's, and that, did, I mean, did you ever hesitate with some missionaries? Thinking, well, I mean, or, or did, did it grow wild at times? <laughs> no, actually it didn't. Nice. We, we had so few issues on our mission. Oh, cool. So few issues yeah. because we weren't rule bound. We were trying to follow what the Spirit was telling us and what just made sense. Yeah. 
So we did have some rules that got broken, some church rules for missionaries that got broken. And and I came down on the elders in those cases and they changed and, and everything was good after that. Yeah. But boy, you just can't, you cannot as a, as a good leader be so bound up with the rules that you can't hear the voice of the spirit telling you to do something different. Yeah. I mean, imagine if Nephi were so pharisaical and I, I guess that's not the exact correct term because the Pharisees didn't come until centuries later, but (laughs) so pharisaical that he couldn't even hear the voice of the spirit. That would have been a problem. Yeah. And in this, this, you know, this broader discussion of orthodoxy and, and, you know, trying to still thinking outside the box that I, you know, just this pattern that you follow of, you thought of ideas, they're outside of maybe the orthodoxy, at least it fell away. And you didn't just go rogue and do them. You, you ask questions, you ask permission, you, you tried different, you know, you, you made sure that it was within the, the authority that you were acting under. I, it makes me think of an interview I just did with an elders quorum president who felt inspired to try something different in his quorum, which required him to release all instructors in his elders quorum. And so he mentioned that to the bishop, he approved and they went forward and it worked out great, right? So there's still like this greater orthodoxy of, you know, you're asking permission. It's not, nobody's going rogue here, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, when when permission was required, we did get permission. I remember the church at the time was, our instruction was to grow the kingdom naturally to, as our congregations grew, that you then kind of gradually spread out with that. And you would see a a, a center of strength. Then you would spread out from this center of strength. The problem is, in Mozambique, you'll have a city, and the next major city won't be for 100 or 200 or 300 kilometers. It's a very long country. Hmm. And for example, we were 1,000 kilometers away where we were living from the mission home on our first mission. And so, how do you deal with a situation like that where the church is never going to expand? So, we, we went to the area presidency and proposed that we open up these new areas, even though we had no members in them which at the time went against the kind of the doctrine that we were being taught as mission presidents. But the area presidency listened to us and they said, yeah, that sounds like for Mozambique, that's kind of what you need to do. And that's what we did. And today now, in one of those areas where we expanded, there's a stake where there were absolutely no members when we first went went there just uh, 11 years ago. Wow. Yeah, that's inspiring. And to see with hindsight, just how important some of those smaller you know, adjustments were. So what other, you know, we have a list here of different principles. What one do you want to jump on next that we haven't touched on? You know, one thing that we taught all of our missionaries, and I think this is a great lesson for all of us, we tried to differentiate between questioning and doubting. And the thing that we told the missionaries and the members was question everything, doubt nothing. Questioning is, and I think we confound these two terms in English, questioning is starting from a neutral position. It's, I really don't know. I don't know if I should go left or right. I haven't made up my mind. In fact, I really don't know anything. And so when you question, this is when we start doing basic research and we start investigating things and we we try to discover everything we can about something before we start forming an, an opinion about it. And I think questioning is an amazing resource tool and it's amazing for just faithful membership within the church. Doubting, on the other hand, already starts from a negative position. It's, well, I don't believe this is correct, but I'll look into it anyway. Mm. I guarantee that most of the time, if you start off with that position, you're going to end with that position. And so 
if I start off thinking that something is not the case, I'm going to determine from my study that it's not the case. I'm going to prove to myself that that's the that that that's what it is. And so I think even outside of leadership, I think we see that a lot today. I don't see a lot of questioning going on with people who have left the church, for example, many times these arise because of doubts people have, not because of questions necessarily, hmm. but because of doubts. Uh, there is a doubt that has been placed in their mind. It's a negativity like, ooh, I wasn't aware of that negative part of church history. And instead of starting from a neutral position and studying the situation and getting all the all different sides of the story, they end up focusing on that one negative aspect and it builds and builds until it becomes insurmountable in their mind and they end up leaving the church. And so we we talked to our elders about that. We we wanted to encourage them to question everything. I told them, question everything I say. Don't just accept it because I'm your mission president. That's just stupid. <laughs> question everything I say. Go back and compare it to the scriptures. Compare it to what the leaders of the church are saying in conference. And if there's a difference or if there's a problem between what I'm telling you and what you're finding in the scriptures, let's talk about it. Don't let this fester in your mind, but question everything. Don't just trust me because I'm your mission president. I could lead you astray. Yeah. You keep saying elders. Did you have any sisters in we your mission? We didn't. We had oh, no how? sisters. At that time, there are sisters in Mozambique now, but at that time, in that part of Africa, it was deemed not safe, yeah. probably for obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Was that yeah. difficult for your wife, Tina? Uh, no, she loved working with all no, these good. young men. Good. Tina got on so great with them. She was their mother away from home, and yeah. she she really enjoyed that role. And what percentage of them were African? About or... 80% of our elders were American. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then we had 20% who were either from African countries, Europe, Brazil, all over the world at that oh, point. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Left turn there. I'll come back to the what talking about how as many I'm sure return mission presidents are experiencing with their missionaries. It's this, you know, this sometimes there's this culture of doubt in the world we live in and and skepticism of religion, organized religion, and whatnot. How, how have you gone about mentoring your your missionaries, your elders about uh, you know in this sort of that age group that's it's difficult. Well, you know, it's interesting. We do have this study group I was telling you about oh, with yeah. some of our return missionaries and where we work on those specific issues, we talk about issues not from a point of doubt, but from a point of questioning. In fact, this group that we have uh, with some of our return missionaries, one of the, in fact, the only ground rule we have for the group is that any question is acceptable. Hmm. And there is nothing out of bounds. You can ask any question you want, and nobody is going to start doubting your faithfulness to the gospel. Wow. And so we really do have that one rule that you can say anything you want. You can express any concern you have, and it doesn't have to go over to doubt. It can just be a concern at this point. But it's great if you can ask it with no, with nobody questioning. I shouldn't even say questioning, with nobody doubting your faithfulness to God. Yeah. You know, and I think when you hear people, I, I had a missionary tell me one time, he said, you know, it's so sad in the church that we have downgraded the word belief. If I get up in church as a return missionary and I say, I believe the church is true and I believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet and I believe that the Book of Mormon is true, 
people are going to start turning to each other in the pews and saying, what's wrong with so-and-so? Mm. Why is, oh, wow. why is he doubting at this point? Why is he not strong enough to say he, he knows? And yet when we read the scriptures, we're told that we're saved by belief in God and belief in the name of Christ. Belief is a, is a self, a saving principle. And so we shouldn't be throwing belief out there. And if somebody feels like saying, I believe, great. That's wonderful. We should, we should glory in their belief. Yeah. Rather than questioning if they're having problems, you know, yeah. or doubting them. Yeah. And I just love this. You've created sort of a platform for your missionaries to come in and, and just that one big ground rule of like, you can really ask anything and just having that safety there is that's probably three fourths the battle. Right? Yeah, yeah, truly, truly. And they can. And I think, I hope our missionaries know that. I hope anybody who talks to me knows that they can talk to me about anything. Yeah. And I want to be completely open and nothing's off the table. Yeah. Anything else around uh, doubt or uh, questioning that you haven't touched on? You know, one of the things that, that this led into, I think I mentioned this to you on, at the end of our first mission, one of our missionaries on the mission came to us and he started talking to us and he said, you know, I'm just not seeing any growth here. You know, we're baptizing all these people, but we're not creating any new branches on the mission. And our mission president was concerned about that too. People were coming in and people were leaving. And so that really made me think, and it really made me start questioning what we were doing. We didn't know we were going to be called back as the mission president couple, but I really started thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And then we got this call and we go back. And so the question is, how do we do things differently? And one thing that we did differently, we decided we were going to start de-emphasizing baptisms. In fact, we stopped reporting completely to the missionaries how many people had been baptized in a given month. Oh, wow. Before that, we had been reporting every month, and on our prior mission, it had been reported every month. We stopped that completely. Instead, we started reporting how many people were attending sacrament meeting throughout our mission, what sacrament meeting attendance was like, and that became our new target. That was what we were looking at. We were looking at greater attendance at our meetings. That signaled better growth than baptisms did. So we stopped reporting. In fact, if you asked me today how many people were baptized during your tenure as mission president, I really have no idea. Wow. I didn't keep track. Yeah. We reported it to church headquarters because <clears throat> they required it, but I didn't even have the missionaries who compiled that data show it to me because I didn't want to know. Yeah, it's, it, it's so easy to focus on that. It almost messes with how you see things. It it's, does. It does. Yeah. That becomes your single focus. Yeah. Instead, we started focusing on missionaries and on people and on what I considered real growth and what the area started teaching was real growth, sacrament meeting attendance and uh, priesthood ordinations. Yeah. Yeah. We sometimes, you know, always want to, we want to focus on people, not numbers, but, you know, numbers are still part of the, the, the soup of it all and understanding what's going on. And so it's more of like, no, let's find the right numbers to focus on that actually are leading us in the path we want to go. Right. Yeah. So this whole idea of questioning really impacted me. And when I started questioning, why are we reporting these statistics to the missionaries? Is it, it's strictly to motivate them to baptize more? Well, actually, we're trying to build the church, not just baptize people. Yeah. And, and it's so easy as a missionary. In fact, another thing that we did, we said, missionary elders, how about if none of you baptize anymore? Instead, why don't we have the local members of the church involved in the missionary work that you're doing and have them do all the baptisms? Mm. That caused some pushback at first. 
The elders didn't like that because they had come out to baptize. But then when we said, you get a young man who's a priest in your branch to go out and help teach with you and have him baptize these people. This will be the first time this young man's ever used as priesthood that way. Well, president, he's going to mess up. He's going to do it wrong. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he's got a friend that's in his congregation. That, that's right. That's the guy that baptized He's me, got right? some ownership in it now. Yeah. And after a while, the elders got used to it and it's like, okay, we don't baptize anymore. Yeah. We teach and we we help the members grow and we we turn this over to them. Let yeah. them do it. That's powerful. Awesome. Anything else uh, jump out uh, that we haven't covered? Or? You know, it's really interesting. So I told you I'd always been a consumer of gospel scholarship. Yeah. Been so interested in it. Never saw myself as a scholar in any way, but on the mission, having to prepare all sorts of zone conferences, this was back before the church gave any direction to a mission president what we were to do in a zone conference. Hmm. And at the time, we were doing zone conferences every six weeks, and we had multiple zones throughout the mission. And so Tina and I were spending literally half of our time, three weeks out of every six weeks, traveling around the mission. And we spent a lot of time preparing these zone conferences. And one thing that we wanted to do, we decided, I remember Alma, when he went to preach to the Zoramites, he said that they had learned that preaching of the word had a more powerful influence upon the hearts of the people than anything, even than the sword. And so rather than being a forceful mission president, I decided I was going to be a gospel teacher. And so for me to be a gospel teacher, I had to be a gospel studier myself. And so during the three weeks that we were home, I spent a lot of time devoting my own time to research of the gospel and learning things that would help strengthen the elders, oftentimes nothing that would help them be a better missionary. And that wasn't the goal. Hmm. The gospel was to, I mean, the purpose of those zone conferences was to help them be a better follower of Christ. And if they became a better follower of Christ, they would naturally become a greater missionary. We weren't teaching them to become salesmen. We were teaching them to become apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and to teach them doctrine. And so we focused on doctrine. Yeah. And that's what we taught. We didn't teach motivation. We didn't uh, teach how to meet people, how to... Uh, how like to, have a, con a first contact or no, whatever. Yeah. We didn't do that at all. We focused <clears throat> wow. on doctrine. Yeah. And we started with the first principles of the gospel, faith repentance, baptism. And the interesting thing is after we returned home, a lot of the research that both Tina and I had done ended up developing into papers that we wrote, that either I wrote or Tina and I wrote together. And I decided that I didn't just have to be a consumer of gospel scholarship. I could become a gospel scholar myself. I could devote the time, which is why I went back to school and learned Hebrew and and studied in Jerusalem so that I could become a gospel scholar and and actually help move the work forward in that way. Yeah. And so as as a leader, I think so often we see I think as leaders we don't see ourselves as gospel scholars we need to be. We need to be the people that are out there teaching our flock and feeding our flock. You know, when Peter was told feed my sheep, Christ didn't mean that literally. Right. He didn't want him to give uh, want Peter to give them bread. He wanted to, him to teach them the principles of the gospel, but 
if we don't understand those gospel principles ourselves, how are we going to do that? You know, to some degree, we can call others to help us to do that, but we need to be out there in the forefront as a gospel scholar. And at first, that starts by being a consumer of gospel scholarship. We read scholarly articles, and we we go deeper than Come Follow Me. The Come Follow Me program's great, but I remember once, right after it came out, I was in a in a testimony meeting, and a brother got up, and he said, he was my age, and he said, I am so grateful for the Come Follow Me program. I've never studied the gospel more deeply in my life, and my jaw just about dropped, <laughs> and I'm thinking, you're kidding me, because this is all pretty basic primary type stuff. This is not anything deep or or profound. Yeah, they want to make it universal, you know. For, That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And so, and just that admission, and then I heard that same comment made so many times after that. And I think that's just so sad that as members of the church, we are not becoming gospel scholars, whether we're leaders or not. Yeah. So, and I have a few questions from that. One going back to this, you know, you hear this concept, like we need to focus on doctrine and teach doctrine. And I think we use that, it's so, sort of becomes so cliche that we've lost the meaning of what, well, what does that even mean? Like, how would you, if you were coaching maybe a Sunday school teacher or maybe a new mission president who's about to do his own conferences, how would you help them understand how do you teach the, God, teach the doctrine? Well, one of the counsels that we got from the area presidency was start by teaching the first principles of the gospel, which are faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. And so... That's what we did, and we actually developed a zone conference just around lectures on faith Mm. that used to be part of the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm. And then you dig into those concepts, and you dig into just that one aspect of faith, and it turned out to be a very powerful, powerful thing. The next thing was to jump into repentance. And so Tina and I, we started reading the Bible and the Book of Mormon just looking for principles of repentance. And we discovered an, an amazing concept there. And this is the amazing thing. President, like President Nelson said, the, the restoration is ongoing. It's happening today still. Doctrine is not invented, but it is discovered. Hmm. And we don't know all of our doctrines even today. Wow. And so in going through and reading this concept of repentance, Tina and I learned that the ancient Hebraic or biblical concept of repentance, the the Hebrew concept, was based on this word called shuv, which means to return or turn. And that according to the Old Testament prophets, it was always a double shuv. It was a double turn. You have to do two things. When we repent, we first have to turn away from our wicked ways and then we have to turn to the Lord. Mm, yeah. But how do we do that? How do we turn to the Lord? It can't be done just in our mind and our heart. It must be done with our actions too. And the scriptures speak repeatedly about this idea of making our evil deeds good. And Christ talked about it, that produce uh, the f- good tree that produces the good fruit. And if a tree produces evil fruit, it's not a good tree. And so we we can't just stop producing evil fruit. We must start producing good fruit. And this is the whole concept of repentance. And this became so clear to us. And then we started looking at the Book of Mormon and found that that very principle is taught in the Book of Mormon throughout the Book of Mormon. We just don't see it when we're reading it. And so this type of, a, I guess some people call it a deep dive into the scriptures and into a specific topic 
really helped us understand it. We ended up writing a paper that got published on on this, and uh, it's been transformative in my life to realize these concepts. It's not good enough for me to just stop doing something bad. I need to replace that bad action with a good action. I can't just leave a, a void in my life where that bad action used to be. Yeah. We can't just be justified. We have to be sanctified as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And sanctification doesn't come from just wanting to be good. Yeah. We actually do need to be good. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. And all these papers you do, is it primarily published through the interpreter? Yes. Actually, that I exclusively submit my papers okay. to interpreter. I, I, I really believe in what they're doing. Yeah. And I'm not putting in a plug for interpreter foundation, <laughs> although I think they're amazing. But I, I believe in the work that they do. And so I, everything I write, I submit to and interpreter. So people want to find it, that's where they would go. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Cool. You could go there. Nice. Nice. And then just with like, you know, going back to that, those, those comments you hear about people saying, you know, come follow me has really helped me to, I've never studied it as in depth. Like, how would you coach an individual who's sitting down to study the gospel? Like, is there a, are there any You points? know, I, I was talking to someone just the other day, a few months ago, and uh, this individual is having problems in his marriage and everything. And his wife felt that he just wasn't living the kind of gospel centered life that he should be. And he like he told me, hey, I go to church every week, you know, I fulfill my callings. And, and I asked him, what about gospel study? Well, uh, yeah, I'm not real good about that. And I said, when's the last time you read the Book of Mormon? Oh, yeah, it's been a while. And, and he said, oh, man, I'm just, that's just so hard to really get into. And I said, why don't you do this? Why don't you just start listening to it? You know, you can go on the, on the church's website and you can just listen. So when you're driving, when you're doing something, just listen but commit to do it every day. Mm -hmm. It's got to be a daily activity. And I was just talking to him about a week ago, and he said, you know, that's made such a difference in his life. He realizes the void that was there Mm. previous to that. And so that's a start. Yeah. And if you feel like you don't have time, you know, rather than turning the television on, just put the audio on for the Book of Mormon and just listen to it. Just let that be there. Put headphones on and listen to it while you're going around the house cleaning the house or working on the car or whatever it is you're doing, working in the yard, mowing your lawn. I don't care what you're doing. (laughs) Just listen to the scriptures, if nothing else. And that influence is going to have an impact on you. And you'll start developing a hunger for wanting to know more. Certain things are going to pop up in your mind and say, hmm, I wonder why he said that, or I wonder why this happened, or why did God do that? Yeah. And it's those types of questions that really help us gain a greater understanding of the gospel. And that's a start. Right. That's a starting point. If you're already doing that, then I would say start going to places like Interpreter Foundation, or uh, there are lots of places out there. Book of Mormon Central is a great location. And they have some really short videos you can watch. They have some really good things that are out there. And just just go out and study those things. Kind of pique your interest. And yeah, that's just a good place to start. Yeah. And it's sort of the dynamic I've experienced. I know many others have with, you know, this formal come follow me effort, which is, you know, great. It's inspired. It's there. But it often feels like uh, you've got homework every every week. Like, oh, I've got to focus on Proverbs because that's where we're at. And so you kind of, sometimes I can feel restricted to just that homework assignment, right? But how do you handle that? So, Kurt, you've been a bishop. Yeah. I'm going to confess. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think the last time I read a come follow me lesson was... uh two years ago. 
And <laughs> I'm not, I think come follow me is great. Yeah. But what's its purpose? Yeah, we're going back to orthodoxy here, aren't we? It's to get people into the scriptures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this is where principles and rules comes in. Yeah, yeah. I study the scripture every day for hours. I'm in the Book of Mormon, the Bible, the Doctrine and Covenants for hours every day. It's part of the research I do. That's how I study the gospel. I don't feel a need to also do the Come Follow Me lesson. That's to help us do and I'm not trying to brag here or anything, but that's to help somebody do what I'm doing already. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, if we need that in our lives to get us to study the gospel, then great. But the point is, it's to get you to study the gospel. If you're doing that and you're doing that in constructive ways, then do it in your constructive ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a great answer. Anything we're missing? Do we cover it all? You know, the only the only thing I wanted to say, the only point I had here was uh, on inspiration, being led by the Holy Ghost. I've had some some rare exceptions in my life where I've really felt the Spirit speak to me. That time with Pres- uh, when I was called by President Eyring to be the president of the Mozambique Maputo Mission, and I felt the Spirit just course through my entire body. That was one. Those are rare. I rarely feel that experience. I had an elder ask me one time, President, how do I know when the Spirit's speaking to me? And that caused me to think and to wonder. And after a minute, I just, of thinking about it, I looked at him and said, you know what? Sometimes the Spirit sounds just like Sister Spendlove. <laughs> I couldn't tell Tina any of the details, confessions or anything. I couldn't let her know what missionary, but very often she was my most important counselor on my mission. And I would go to Tina and I would say, I'm having this problem. You know, as the mission president of only districts, I also was responsible for 5,000 members of the church. And so I would go and say, I'm having this problem with this branch president or with the district presidency or with missionary or something. And I couldn't tell her who, but I would describe the situation. And like I said, Tina's a very innovative thinker. And sometimes she would just say something that would smack me, just like it was like it was a baseball being thrown at my face. And it was like, yeah, that's the answer. That's it. And I didn't feel this glowing all over my body. <laughs> I didn't feel burny and all that kind of stuff. But I, it was right. And I knew it was right. E- everything in my mind told me it was right. And so I told the elder, sometimes the spirit sounds just like Sister Spendlove has her voice. And I meant that. And uh, that's so true. And so we need to learn to hear the spirit, sometimes through some very unconventional ways. And still to this day, Tina is often my source of inspiration when I'm working on a research project. And uh, I tell Tina I'm kind of stuck. And she'll say, well, have you thought about this? And it's like, wow, yeah, that's what I needed. And so my point with that is we need to be willing to reach out to others and seek other people's opinions. We don't have to have all the answers as a leader of the church or as a leader of any organization. We have a lot of really skillful people around us and a lot of people who can advise us and need to advise us. And we need to be able to listen and take their advice and sometimes that's how the Spirit speaks to us. And if we can't hear that, if we're deaf to that, we're going to have a hard time. Wow, that's so powerful. And, and that's been my experience too. You know, I, 
I don't, uh, very rarely do I get the, the clear voice in my head, but as you connect and discuss and counsel, it comes, you know, it's yeah. so true. And you know, when other people give us the advice, Hey, give them the credit for it too. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I'm not so proud that I can't say, Hey, Tina told me about this and yeah. And it worked, right? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Obviously we mentioned the interpreter. If people want to read some of your papers and whatnot, is that the best place to go or anywhere else you'd, you'd um, send people? I also have an academia.edu website where I post all of my published work. And so they can just, I think just Google my name. Nice. And you're not, like we said, you're not done with higher ed. You're, you're headed to the UK, right? In a few yeah, years? Yeah. Our plan is in a year to go and do another master's degree in, in theology. So. Nice. so what are the PhDs and master's degrees that you have? I have an MBA and okay. then I have a PhD in education and then I have a master's in Jewish studies. And that last one, I just finished uh, two years ago. That was with the Hebrew University over in Jerusalem. Oh, awesome. Awesome. On to the next one. Right? Yep. On cool. to the next one. All right. Last question I have for you is as you reflect on your time as a leader, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Yeah. You know, very interesting. I told you this. One of the first things that I told you when I met you is that I'm a reluctant leader. Hmm. I'm not a reluctant follower. I would never be the first to go out there and offer myself as a leader, but I am a very willing follower of Christ. And maybe that's the secret. Maybe rather than being a willing leader and a reluctant follower, maybe we need to be the, the opposite. I love to follow a righteous leader. Jesus Christ is, the, is that true righteous leader, and I have no qualms about following him. One of the best leaders I've ever followed, and I mean this, was uh, Elder Renland. He was our area president at the, uh, at, during a lot, a lot of our time there in, in Africa. And he led with humility. And that's what I liked best about Elder Renland. He was willing to listen to me and to uh, not tell me what I was going to do, but actually accept my opinion. He said, well, President Spendlove, you know Mozambique better than I do. Who am I to doubt you? And he was such a humble leader that I willingly wanted to follow him. And so Elder Renland has kind of become my guide for how to be a good leader. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts, and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts, well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org contact. And remember to review the Mentally Healthy Saints Library, click the link in the show notes or go to leadingsaints.org 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, 
we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.